0: gospel and it says if anybody preaches another gospel then what you'd already accepted let them be eternally condemned so paul preaching to the galatians was adamant that there is no other gospel there is one gospel there's no deviation from the message there's one famous preacher teacher who was interviewed on national television and they asked him why don't you talk about sin he says i wasn't called to preach that what gospel were you called to preach sir but we have a message. You shall put nothing before the gospel. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to demonstrate that gospel preaching is inseparable from evangelism. How do I know this? The New Testament was written in Greek, correct? Correct. That word gospel is translated from a Greek word, euangelion, which means good news, gospel, and then that translates to our English word evangelism. And so that word euangelion is used several times in the New Testament, and it's always used in conjunction with preaching. For example, Mark 1.14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel. Other words used in conjunction with the gospel are to preach to testify, to bear witness to. This is what we do with the gospel. As we heard in the first message, Is a message we must preach. Amen? And I want to say this plainly. Whatever you do for the Lord, you could feed the poor, you could clothe the naked, you could bandage up the wounded, but if you at no point stop to preach the gospel to them, you are not evangelizing to them. You could go to Lower Wacker Drive, give them sandwiches, and, and they'll, they could still go to hell with full bellies. Jesus said in 18 and 19, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. To preach the good news to the poor. He didn't say to give the poor a sandwich. It didn't say to start a social program. But that's what we seem to be into in the church nowadays. We want to do anything to help people except preach the gospel. We want to eat, meet any other material, physical need except, except the spiritual need. That is, their soul needs to be right with God. And so we'll address all those other things. We'll address their, their education. We'll address their health care. We'll address the clothes on their back. So on and so forth. But we would fail to address the state of their souls. And why is that? Because we're ashamed of the gospel. Because people love you when you feed them. People love you when you clothe them. People love you when you do charitable acts. And they'll say you're a kind person. But when you preach the gospel, that's when you become offensive. And that's when you rub people the wrong way. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, The gospel, by the way, is a specific message. It addresses a person standing with God. When you preach the gospel, you are to confront them. It is a confrontational message. You're addressing this is your sin. This is your morality. This is your relationship with God. And you're putting them in a place where they have to understand something in my life needs to change. So if I'm preaching to somebody and he's drunk as a skunk and he's with his girlfriend and they're living together. Far be it from me to leave that conversation with them feeling like I affirmed them in that. Like I gave them a nice spiritual pep talk. I made them feel better about their situation or whatever they were doing. But I didn't address their soul. I didn't address repentance. I didn't address their relationship with God and how that was marred by sin. One of the worst insults I've ever received as an evangelist was not being called a hypocrite. It wasn't being called a bigot or any of the above. And I was called all of those things, Some sometimes by my family members. The worst insult I received as an evangelist street preaching was I was called a motivational speaker. I met a homeless man on Bourbon Street about five years ago. This was a summer mission trip. And I started to I, I just out of timidity or ignorance, I just failed to really preach the gospel to him. And I just kind of gave him some encouraging spiritual things. You know, you know, God will help you. Just trust the Lord, and he'll make it better. And, you know, hey, maybe you should apply for a job here and, and all that. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, he, he called my bluff. You're a motivational speaker. You're no know better than a motivational speaker. Another example, sometime later, I was in Wicker Park, and I, I was going to preach the gospel to a homeless man. But instead of looking at his spiritual need, I could only see his physical need. Remember, Jesus said, preach the gospel to the poor. I didn't preach the gospel to him. I ended up giving this homeless man a lesson on tithing. And I went back to Pastor Joe, and Pastor Joe asked me, did you preach to that man? I said, yes, I did. Well, what did you tell him about? Uh, I said, about tithing. I told him about tithing. He said, did you tell him to repent of his sins? Did you tell him to be born again? I said, no, I didn't. He says, go back and tell him that. So I went back and I told him it. What's the lesson here? The gospel is a very specific message. You can hit on all sorts of topics. You can go all sorts of rabbit trails. But we want to get to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Is your heart right before God? And I want to um, build on something that Pastor Joe said, refuting the myth, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Uh, Looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and onward. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. He didn't say do an interpretive dance. He didn't say be really nice to everybody. He said preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Do the work of an evangelist. Words are necessary, people. Words are very necessary when God decided on a on a revelation to give to the whole human race for all generations. He didn't give us a skit team. All right. And he didn't just give us like this really nice godly guy to set a good example for us. Like, hi, I'm Bob. I'm just a very nice guy. And you're going to get saved because I'm nice. No, he gave us a book. A book, and this book is comprised of words and sentences and paragraphs, and we need to take those words and sentences and paragraphs, and, those, and and that has to come out of our mouth. We have to convey it, and almost all the time it's verbally. Well, what if they're deaf? Do si- sign it. Write it on a piece of paper. What if, what if, what if they're blind? You know, just shout in their ear. You know, there's really no excuse. We need to be direct. In our preaching of the gospel, and I felt like I had to say that because we cop out. I'm just going to be a nice person. Let's say you were on the job, and you want to show um, your, all your coworkers and your boss what a good Christian you are, and you want them to get saved through your witness, but you've determined, I'm not going to use words because that turns people off, and that offends people, so I'm not going to use words. I'm just going to be a good worker and a nice guy. And he does that for 20 years, comes early, stays late, does everything he's supposed to do. And finally his boss pulls him to the side and he says, hey, I want to have lunch with you. And he's like, this is my big moment, 20 years leading up to this meeting, being a nice guy and a good worker. And the boss sits down with him. He says, you know, something's different about you. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, something's really different about you. Are you a vegetarian? You need to use words. The gospel requires words. You need to tell them about Jesus. You need to tell them you're a Christian. You need to tell them why you're a good worker and a nice guy because God made you a brand new man. It requires words. And friend, whatever you do, if you're not using words and preaching the gospel and confronting people with the reality of God and their need to change their life, you are not evangelizing, period. Second uh, commandment. You shall be the initiator of the evangelistic conversation. That's a long sentence, but there was no way I could shorten it. You shall be the initiator of the evangelistic conversation. Looking at Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Here's a secret about sinners. Sinners are sinners. They are unspiritual people. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says how they're unspiritual. They have carnal, fleshly minds. They think fleshly thoughts. 1 John says that the worldly people listen to a worldly point of view, and if they were of God, they would listen to us. So with that in mind, I am not waiting for a sinner to come up to me talking about Jesus. Going back to that last example, you being a good person, a good worker, you're waiting for people to come to you about Jesus. You need to be going to them. This is obvious, but we don't get it. We wait for them to come to us as a way to justify our cowardice. So we're waiting for unspiritual, ungodly people to have spiritual, godly conversations with us? No, we need to initiate it with them. We're the ones who have the Holy Spirit. We're the ones who have the commandment from Jesus. We're the ones with the life-saving message. We're the ones with the burden for lost souls. Not them. How can we expect that of them? It should be expected of us. I read Romans ten thirteen through 15. We often quote that out of context, but the context actually helps it because Paul is speaking of Jews speaking of jewish people and they have a great spiritual pedigree about them he talks about how they have the law and they have the great traditions and and, and they had the temple worship and they had abraham and isaac and jacob and all the things that are in their favor spiritually speaking so close yet so far because having all those things still did not equal their salvation and what was the missing uh, what was the missing link it was a preacher they had to understand what was the purpose of the temple what what kind of man Abraham was? He was a man of faith to to unlock the secrets of the Messiah. Someone had to preach to them to explain and make it clear. What we've done is we've made the we've got the exception and the rule mixed up. The exception is this: sometimes God reaches people supernaturally, without any human agent or, or preacher. People get saved through dreams and visions. People just. You know, they'll, they'll get saved in the shower, just crying, "Ah, oh, Jesus, you love me. You're cleaning me like the shower cleans me." You know, and, and they just get saved, and nobody's around to do it. They're just hit by the ghost and conviction, and and boom, they're they're living for Jesus. That's the exception. That's not the rule. The pattern throughout the Bible was that God always desired to work through human agency. Remember Genesis chapter one. He said to Adam and Eve. You be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He didn't take it upon himself. He didn't send angels to do it. He had people to do it. In Ezekiel, he said, if I could just find a man who would stand in the gap, I would withhold judgment on this nation. But he couldn't find a man. He was looking for a man. Why? Because that's his purpose. And God gets all the glory, by the way, for saving us. But when God worked out his plan of salvation and fullness, God actually became a man because man blew it and a man had to win it back. And so this is the rule that God uses people like you and me. And remember Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to pour it out on people. So it's not that he's just using us or commanding us or sending us out. It's that he's working with us. When you have the Holy Ghost in you, he empowers you to be his witness. But you have to be the willing witness. So, on that note, we... We are to, uh, to make that our rule, not to make the exception the rule that sometimes folks get saved apart from human agency. Another example would be in Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. How many know the story? This Ethiopian man is well-versed in the Jewish law. He's what you call a God-fearer, and he's very close to the Jewish religion, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Now, God did not simply drop a Revee on his head as he's reading Isaiah and that guy got saved in his carriage. No, the Holy Spirit told Philip, you go and explain to that man what's on that scroll. God working through human agents. Acts chapter 9, we know Saul who became Paul, yes. Saul was knocked off his horse. He was blinded for three days. And God sent a man, Ananias, to lay hands and see his healing. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, a man of prayer, a, a pious man, a good man, but he's, he's a God-fearer. He's not a converted Jew. He's a Gentile. And he gets a vision of an angel. But guess what, guys? The angel didn't preach the gospel to him. But Peter simultaneously got a vision, and he, and he was sent by God to go preach uh, to Cornelius. Again, God didn't use the angel, God used Peter. And so this is the rule. God is going to use people. There are people around you that are like like those people. They're so close yet so far. People like a Cornelius, people who are reading their Bible at home and not quite knowing what it means, and they need someone to explain it to them like the eunuch did. They're so close yet so far. There's people that are praying in their rooms. They're not very open about their spiritual life or how they feel on the inside, but they're waiting for somebody to preach to them a message that's going to confirm what they're feeling in their soul. People are so close yet so far, I believe all around us, but the missing link is, is us. We need to be the ones to reach them. The third commandment. You shall reason and persuade. You've got to write all these down. Again, not having a PowerPoint. I'm going to try to post that up by the end of the week. You shall reason and persuade when evangelizing. Third commandment, very practical. You shall reason and persuade when evangelizing. 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, that word Peter used to give an answer is apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics and what Pastor Joe is giving as a lesson in apologetics. And you see how deep that gets, right? I'm going to try to make it very simple for you right now uh, and, and show you the pattern and give you a principle from the book of Acts. Now, I want you in your notes to write down these two passages. We're not going to turn to them or read them right now, but just just mark them down. Acts three twelve through 26 and then acts 17 22 through 31 acts 312 through 26 and acts 17 22 to 31 we're not going to read these right now but i'm going to show you how to build a bridge to the gospel because the person you meet on the street as i've mentioned is unspiritual and they're ungodly and their ideas are ungodly you ask them about jesus they'll have an unbiblical idea about jesus you ask them how to get to heaven they'll have an off idea about how to get to heaven so on and so forth they have their own worldview. they have their own presuppositions so we need to build a bridge from their mindset to a place where they can comprehend understand and receive the gospel everybody with me you start where they're at and you take them to Jesus wherever they're at you can take them to Jesus it's not that hard so acts 3 and Acts 17 Peter preaches in acts 3 Paul preaches in acts 17 Peter preaches in Jerusalem which is the religious center of the Jewish religion. And then in Acts 17, Paul preaches in Athens, Greece, which is the philosophical capital of the world at that time. Peter preaches to Jews. Paul preaches to Greeks. Uh, Peter's at the Jewish temple, the center of Jewish worship. Peter, uh, Paul is at the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, which is the place of philosophers and Greek um, religion. And in Acts 3... Peter's starting point, is he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just setting this up for you. Peter preaching to Jews in Jerusalem at the temple. These are religious people, and he starts with them on terms they understand. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you say that to a Jew, their ears perk up. Hey, I like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my God. So Peter starts from, from their understanding. And then he quotes Moses, and he cites the prophets. And these are things that they get. Now, with Paul, it's a little bit different. He's preaching to Gentiles, to pagans, to philosophers, and to people who don't really care about Jewish religion. And so instead of starting with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he points to one of their own altars to an unknown God. So you see the two starting points. One is Jewish religion. The other is Greek philosophy. Are you with me? When Peter quotes Moses and the prophets to the Jews, Paul quotes Epimenides and Aratus, which were... Uh, uh, Gentile philosophers that 's where he says in him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring that's what the, he quotes pagan philosophers. And then Peter talks about the recent events of Christ and then Paul alludes to philosophy and nature principles. So they start off in these very different places to these very different audiences. but if you observe the sermons, they have these three main points. they both get to the point that're uh, the resurrection of Christ, Of the return of Christ in the day of judgment and of repentance and response. I don't have time to read those scriptures, but they start off with two different audiences and two different vantage points, and they take it to the same place. They build a bridge to Jesus and his resurrection, to the day of judgment, and to repentance. Amen? Amen. And so our job then is to build a bridge for, for Muslims, for atheists, for Buddhists, for agnostics, for anybody that comes your way and here's a simple thing we just found out how deep the world of apologetics can get defending the faith against all these worldviews. in fact if you go to wicker park everybody has their own custom-made religion you know so it's like it's very hard to be prepared for what people might throw at you but here's a secret we learned from bankers bankers don't look at all the counterfeits because there's so many they study the real thing the real twenty dollar bill and when a counterfeit comes, they know how to discern it. And so that's what we need to do. Know the fundamentals of our faith, study and know what we believe and have a ready answer for them. Amen. Amen. <sighs> Number four, you might if I keep you five minutes over, I'm going to get through the first five here. Number four, you should perform signs, wonders, miracles and acts of compassion to co- accompany your message. Again, another lengthy one, signs, wonders, miracles, and, and acts of compassion accompany your message, something I couldn't break down. But these two categories of, of the spiritual life have serve a similar purpose because I could talk about signs, wonders, and miracles, spiritual gifts, and so on, and I could talk about acts of compassion. And those sermons might sound very different, take on different emphasis, but they serve one purpose, I talked about building a bridge to the gospel. Now I want to break down barriers to the gospel. Amen. So you build a bridge and then you find out that there's a wall between you and where you want to go, a fortified wall. At that point, you don't need a bridge. You need some dynamite to blow the sucker up, right? Amen. So some people, no matter how well you explain it to them, have hard hearts. So we need to break down barriers through signs, wonders, and miracles, acts of compassion. Quickly to to the signs and wonders. Mark 16 and verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. They will drink deadly poison and it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Here's a few points I want to make. Jesus said this, like, if you go and be my witness, this is what's going to happen. If you preach the gospel, these signs will accompany you who believe. Anybody a believer in here? So Jesus said it. Some people doubt it. Should we believe Jesus or the doubters? Amen. So we should believe what Jesus said. So the... One application here is persevere. Don't change your theology based on your experience. Because you might lay hands on somebody the first time and they don't get healed and say, well, there must not be healings. But Jesus said there would be healings. So what's, which is true? The word of God always proves true. Persevere. If you prayed for a thousand people and 999 never got healed, but the thousandth person did, wouldn't it be worth it? Persevere. Don't change your theology according to your experience. Change your experience according to to the word of God. Amen. And then the secret to seeing miracles is there is no secret. The secret is this. Go, believe and be his witness. Seek out opportunities, heal the sick and cast out demons. You see a person who's sick or someone you know is sick, offer them prayer. You see a person who's demonized, cast that sucker out in Jesus name. You don't want to, you know, regret wondering what would have happened if you don't actually go out and do the things. And quickly to acts of compassion, another way of breaking down barriers. And here's a a simple quote that's very powerful. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so our acts of compassion are a way of showing people that what we preach, our lifestyles line up with what we preach. We preach a message of hope, we give hope. We preach a message of restoration, we give restoration. We preach a message of generosity, and we're generous. We preach a message of a kind God, and we're kind ourselves. And when our lives don't match up with our message, it can serve to harden the hearts of those we preach to. 1 John three sixteen through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, do not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. You know, our words can be very empty when not backed up with action. If I say I love my wife, but slap her around and cheat on her, how do I know my words are vain? And if I preach a message of hope, If I preach a message of grace and I offer condemnation and no assistance to help people, my message is nullified by my conduct. Our words can be empty. In James 2, he says, be warm and well-fed. Well, he doesn't give them anything to keep him warm and well-fed. We don't want to have a lifestyle that contradicts the message. Jesus talked about Pharisees that burden people. It says they tie burdens on men's shoulders. They won't lift a finger to help. Our message is not to add to their burden of sin, but to lift their burden of sin and relieve them from it. The application to this is found in the tale of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to go through this quickly. You might want to write down some points here. Luke 10, 30 through thir- 33 through 35. And I'm just going to read it, draw out the applications as we go along. First, in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the man where he was. First principle of a good Samaritan, and by the way, every good evangelist is a good Samaritan. Amen? Every good evangelist is a good Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. So the first thing is he stopped what he was doing and went out of his way to go to the person. It's a temptation for us in our busy, fast-paced lives to not stop and pay attention to people. To say, I want to take my shoes off. I want to go home and eat. I don't have time to stop, to talk to this crazy guy in the expressway. I got to go. And so he actually went out of his way and made time for him. That's something that we'll have to do. We're often too busy and distracted to help or even notice hurting people. But the Samaritan took time with him. Number two, when he saw him, he took pity on him. He showed genuine compassion. This was not coerced. This was was his heart. It wasn't just to show people what a good person he was. But it was just the, the compassion in his heart for that person. Number three, he went and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He addressed a felt need. He addressed a felt need, and some people have needs. I feel this, I feel that, I feel hungry, I feel sick, and we need to address felt needs of people. Some people need a ride, some people need a sandwich, so on and so forth. Use wisdom as you do it. Number four, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He gave up his time. We need to be willing to do the same. If we're not willing to invest time into the people we preach to, what are we doing? So let's say someone gets saved. You're saved. Now, scram. I'm never going to see you again. No, you're going to continue to be in that person's life. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He gave of his sustenance. He gave of his wealth. Give what you can, a ride, a bus cart, a sandwich, etc. Look after him, he said, verse 35, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He did not forget that man, but he followed up with him. And we do the same in evangelism. We follow up with prayer, phone calls, etc., to show our concern and love for those. If we could stand. I want to quickly give the last point, part and parcel, to an altar call. As I said, I'd give the first five. And I want to respect your time. Thank you for sticking around fifth commandment you shall disciple those who are saved through your witness matthew twenty eight eighteen. then jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you always and surely i am with you to the very end of the age This was Jesus' mandate for the church. Everything we do, evangelism included, involves making disciples. Do you have a disciple-making strategy for those you win to the Lord, or are you just going to leave them like sheep without a shepherd? No, you've got to have a place where they can grow and be mentored and be loved and be accountable. Amen? Amen. Um, I'm going to pass it over. I think the weather must have cleared, right? Come on. Amen. So... We might get it in right now huh? really quick we're going to dismiss those who got to go after this no condo bondo uh, as a matter of fact uh, I'll just pray because I gave you guys my word three o'clock okay so father bless those who have to go and give them a wonderful day in Jesus name Amen so those of you who have to go you guys can just start moving